Now, coming hot off our last episode, I have to say I was a little surprised by some of the feedback we got over our rather acerbic review of uh, the third installment in the Clerks trilogy. I said in that episode that that film basically did not connect with me and I did not connect with it on uh, any <laughs> level, despite Will's constant assurances that no, the first Clerks film is actually good. You know, in spite of everything, if you watched it, you'd have a good time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I could tell in the feedback we got that, like, Clerks does mean something to some people. Uh, there were a lot of people who agreed. Like, I don't think people got too uh, defensive over Clerks 3. But there were a lot of people who very much had your experience with the movie rather than mine. Which is to say, you know, they were kind of saddened by Clerks 3, you know, because it was such a degeneration from the original. Um, whereas I just found the entire thing totally illegible. Well, like I said on the last episode, I'm sad... I'm not losing sleep over it, but I'm slightly sad that the clerk's well has probably been poisoned for you because I do very earnestly believe that if you saw the first one, you would like it. Watching the third one, Christ, for the second time, uh, I was struck again by how the convenience store in the movie, the, the metaphor, what the, what the convenience store means has changed so much. Like in the first movie, the convenience store was purgatory. The convenience store was simply a commercial space where these overeducated, underambitious guys trapped in this sort of malaise, that's where they were fated to be. And all the pop culture stuff, you know, that's them getting a little bit of relief during these agonizing days working at the convenience store. I don't think we, we, we quite addressed this, but in Clerks 3, during the end credits, Kevin Smith, like his voice appears, like Kevin Smith is heard doing a five-minute monologue during the end credits, giving some of his thoughts. And among what he says, he says that his perspective has changed. One of the iconic lines from the first movie was Randall saying, this job would be great if it wasn't for the fucking customers. And now he disowns that line. He says, you know, over the years, he realizes that his job, Ke Kevin realizes that his job is great because of the fucking customers. And that's you. That's you, the fans who, who keep who keep he owns the store now, you know, he's not working at the store. And so you see in each subsequent Clerks movie, the relationship to the store changes. The store is no longer just this purgatorial way station. It becomes, ah, the old convenience store. It's the place from which all of this emerged. And you know what? We don't even need to leave the convenience store. It's it's all here. The convenience store isn't purgatory. It's Eden. And that, yeah. and that by the time you get to Clerks 3, I don't think I have to do a whole monologue about the, the fault in that thinking, right? Yeah, it's definitely not purgatory to me, and it's certainly not Eden. It's hell. Because if you want a vision of hell, uh, it's a bunch of guys sitting around in a video store in the 90s debating whether Greedo shot first forever. I do not <laughs> want to be stuck in there. Anyway, welcome back to Michael and Us, everyone. I'm Luke Savage. As always with me here is my esteemed co-host, Will Sloan. How's everyone? We're still recording in our separate abodes. Yes, that's right. Will and I are speaking to each other across a computer screen. Screen, uh, you know, across the city. We are also both wearing masks to be extra safe. Don't want to take any chances, folks. I'm actually double masked right now. But we wanted to get back to basics on this episode. I found myself really pining for one of those Michael and Us classics. You know, I wanted a swing vote. I wanted a man of the year. Uh, you know, I wanted one of those movies that 
Will and I, you know, really used to be our bread and butter. These kind of politics, what a concept movie that purports to have a whole lot on its mind and has very little on its mind. Wow, you hated Clerks 3 that much, huh? (laughs) I don't know. I felt like, you know, we've had an eclectic mixture of fare the last few weeks. We had Clerks 3. We also did Videodrome. So we've had a mix of like heady content and definitely not heady content that's not very good, but it's it's not not good in the way that I was craving, which is, you know, I want, I don't know, some of that like vintage 2000s kind of like, ooh, uh, politics, aren't the politics interesting uh, kind of movies. And I do fear, you know, that we've, we've kind of passed through, like we've done all the kind of A-list films. If anybody knows of a film that can rival, you know, classics that we've tackled on this podcast, like A Swing Vote or A Man of the Year, uh, do let us know in the DMs or, or wherever. Truly, we can never get enough of those movies. Uh, but so we set out to find something of that variety this week, and we settled on a 2011 film from the mind of George Clooney, starring Ryan Gosling, called The Ides of March, a film which dares to ask the question, can idealism really survive the rough and tumble world of politics? Let me tell you something, folks. I'm not a Christian. I'm not an atheist. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. My religion, what I believe in, is called the Constitution of the United States of America. So speaketh George Clooney, uh, who's also in this movie, or rather uh, Ryan Gosling as George Clooney's campaign staffer, Stephen rehearsing one of his boss's canned lines for later that evening in the all-candidates debate ahead of the upcoming Democratic presidential primaries in Ohio. Who's this? I'm Duffy. You got a couple of minutes? I'd like to sit down with you. I can't be talking to you. You got something the other guys don't have. You exude something. You draw people in. You're the big man on campus. I'm just a lowly intern. What time you got to work tomorrow? 9 a.m. I thought I was being smooth and subtle. No, you're pretty forward. You have an idea out of tight time. No, no, not a clue. You got the best media mind in the country. All reporters love you. If your boy wins, you get a job in the White House. He loses, you're back at a consulting firm. I've worked on more campaigns than most people have. By the time they're 40, he's the only one that's going to actually make a difference in people's lives. Either we're going to lead the world or we are going to bury our heads in the sand. What can be said about this film, folks? It is not very good. It is also not particularly bad. It looks like a movie. It is, as Will is fond of saying often, a a working piece of machinery. It has good actors, good cast, who are all giving it their best. People we love. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Giamatti, even on screen together in one scene. Can you believe that? Seeing them together, it was like De Niro and Pacino in (laughs) Heat, you know? (laughs) This is definitely a movie about politics. Uh, (laughs) There is not a lot going on in it. And uh, in that sense, I think it did kind of uh, satisfy my craving. It's fun to just sort of like look into the void and have the void stare back at you once in a while. Well, can I just say, I'm not quite sure which direction your thumb is pointed on this one, but I uh, turned this one on, you know, (laughs) fired up the old Amazon Prime with a sense of obligation, uh, (laughs) with the enthusiasm with which I would approach jury duty. Uh, The movie starts and it's got all the politics stuff in it. And I thought... Boy, I would really rather be any place else than this. And then I and then I said to myself, you know what? This right, isn't exce- such a bad except a real job. Yeah, this is this is an okay job actually. This is this is pretty good. But what can I say? The fluorescent lights of the New Jersey Quick Stop speak to my soul more than the Beltway does. 
<laughs> but you want to know something? Uh, I kind of liked this movie. I don't want to make any great claims for it, but I thought this movie was pretty entertaining. It's a real airport paperback of a movie. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it really moves. It's got twists and turns. And I thought the cast, uniformly excellent. Yeah, they're all good. You know, based on a play by one Bo Williman, who, as I understand, was later the showrunner <laughs> of the American version of House of Cards, which That's won't right. be a huge shock to you after <laughs> watching this movie. A show that is also uh, a meditation on uh, power and what people will take to achieve it. That's right. But this movie is based on his play, Farragut North. And, you know, it's got real playwright energy. It's got, you know, lots of big monologues. It's got actors doing the acting sinking their teeth into that David Mametian dialogue and you know there are some scenes in this movie like when either Paul Giamatti or Philip Seymour Hoffman are doing their big speeches (laughs) doing the acting when I thought man I really like this George Clooney too you know George Clooney can be counted on to deliver a monologue all these people can so on the entertainment level I thought it was pretty fun Uh, now, when we were tossing around movie ideas and we hit upon this movie, we were thinking, what's the angle on this movie? And I thought, well, I know who we, we need to consult for this. There's one man who will tell us what the angle is, and that's Roger Ebert. You can always count on the first two paragraphs of his review to very credulously tell you what kind of politics you're in for. And the late, great Roger Ebert says, the Ides of March tells me something I already knew that the experience of running an American political campaign is crushing for body and soul. By the time a winning candidate survives more than a year of primaries and the general election, it is a wonder he has the strength remaining to govern. The film also raises the question of whether it is possible for any candidate to win and yet remain true to his original values. Although the movie stars George Clooney, well known as a Democrat, it doesn't target or even really consider Republicans. It takes place entirely within a Democratic primary campaign, and although our feelings about who is good and bad may evolve, they're all Democrats. So, you know, reading that really did not sound very interesting to me. You know, like we've seen a lot of movies about how, you know, wouldn't you believe it uh, on the campaign trail? Uh, you've got to uh, sometimes some dirty dealings have to be done. Politics, it's, it's a messy business, folks. Would you believe it? You know, on this chessboard, everyone wants to be a king. And uh, uh, who knows if you end up being a pawn. Uh, so I was not too excited for that. And then, of course, the shocking twist that they're all Democrats as opposed to Republicans, you know, also not too much of a shocker for me. But the other reason that I kind of wanted to watch this movie was because this is a 2011 movie. It's from, you know, the mid Obama period. I mean, this movie, I don't think really caught on. It did okay, but it was not a factor in the Oscar race that year. Not a huge blockbuster. Nevertheless, George Clooney, along with people like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, is one of Hollywood's ur liberals. And so what this movie is saying is of interest to just sort of taking the temperature of the Hollywood liberal imagination at that moment. What are they thinking? You said that it wasn't a factor in the Oscar race, uh, Will, but, you know, it did win the Bryan Award at the Venice International Film Festival. So I just wanted to make sure we didn't uh, skip over that. Fair enough. I stand corrected. I think it was nominated for one Oscar, at least, for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. And uh, George Clooney, folks, did not just direct this movie and is not just a Major character in it. He also was one of three screenwriters on it. So this is straight from the mind of George Clooney. But you know, when you look at movies that were factors in the Oscar race at that time, movies that were really capturing the zeitgeist, the year after this one, the nominees included Lincoln, Zero Dark Thirty, Django Unchained. 
I think there was a certain malaise hitting the American liberal imagination circa 2011-2012. You compare this movie to like the politics what a concept movies that we saw coming out during the 90s. You know, your speechlesses, your Daves, your my fellow Americanses. God, so many fallen comrades. <laughs> Even the late <laughs> Bush era swing vote. Their thesis is always, you know, the problem is we've got too divided. We've forgotten our common values. And if we get back in touch with our common values, we reach across the aisle, uh, we, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this wave of movies in the mid-Obama era, particularly like Zero Dark Thirty and Lincoln, where what they're saying is, listen, what you liberals don't understand is that politics is a dirty business. And actually, you've got to be prepared to get down and dirty if you want to do something. You've got to sacrifice your integrity. You've got to sacrifice something in the short term to get something done in the long term. That's very much what was going on in Lincoln, you know, the liberal Obama era movie, where it's all about, you know, Lincoln's uh, working deals with everyone in Congress, getting his hands dirty. Right. And, and where, you know, politics is very much conceived as sort of an ecosystem. The film doesn't hate Thaddeus Stevens, played by Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who's the radical abolitionist. It just knows that he has his place. Politics is a, you know, a delicate equilibrium and good political leadership is all about balancing out that equilibrium. And, you know, you need the idealists as well as the pragmatists. A bird needs his left and right wings to fly, etc., etc., which is very much an extension of the Obama theory of politics. This kind of particularly after the 2010 midterms where it was abundantly clear, like, OK, all the fantasies liberals had that 2008 was inaugurating this new consensus that even Republicans were going to have to work with or die, you know, that there was going to be this massive uh, legislative program that was going to be passed, you know, that was going to be on the scale of the New Deal or something like that. Once that fantasy went away, you know, what was left uh, was basically, you know, Obama's core instinct, which was to perpetually seek this idea of sort of national harmony. You know, he saw the presidency, I think, fundamentally as a sort of a pastoral role. He was the convener in chief, the referee between these kind of warring factions, uh, you know, an impulse that often led him in dealings with the right to offer them more than they asked for and then, you know, get none of it. But I was thinking about this recently, and I think you're absolutely right, Will, the kind of scheme you just offered comparing the politics what a concept films of maybe the late 90s and 2000s to the kinds of movies that increasingly predominated during the Obama era. I think the first wave of movies where, as you put it, you know, the problem is always, well, we're too divided. Ironically, I think those sorts of movies were mostly the product of uh, a political climate where, yeah, sure, you know, the, the rhetoric was often, you know, very polarized and Republicans and Democrats hated each other, etc. But like they were pretty much on the same page when it came to a lot of the big legislative priorities. The ideological distance between the two parties had very much narrowed. And so what was left over was the kind of cosmetic. It was about we need to have less rancor and things like that. We're removing ideological contestation from the equation, so now we need to move. Even the spectacle of contestation is too much. We all need to come together. And then after 2008, when there's this moment where, you know, liberals and uh, my uh, teenage self certainly thought that there was going to be this big, uh, you know, we thought we were living through this massive political realignment, which turned out to be completely illusory. And I really think that the trauma of 2009, 2010, and the recriminations afterwards for the American liberal imagination has never fully been grappled with. 
all of these films that come out after the Obama thing and from liberals that are actually more cynical and are kind of having to grapple with this ambient cynicism that's in the air about, you know, how how idealism can't survive in politics. And fundamentally, it's very, very dirty. It's interesting, and I never stop finding hilarious, by the way, that apparently on the night Donald Trump was elected, all of the conversations in the Obama White House uh, according to, I, I can't remember, I'd have to find the piece, but there was a piece in the New York Times about, you know, the Obama White House, that fateful night in 2016. And apparently Obama was huddled with some of his closest advisors. And their big takeaway was, you know, maybe we reached too far. Maybe we were just too idealistic about, you know, whatever we were supposedly idealistic about. I'm fascinated that that was their reading. I mean, it's a very self-interested interpretation of events. But to go back to kind of 2009, 2010 and the immediate aftermath and this kind of climate of cynicism, I really think it's an underappreciated reality that the 2008 moment, albeit fleetingly, gave multiple generations of political staffers and, you know, idealistic college students and, you know, all kinds of people on the liberal left. They all briefly had this view that, you know, all of the stars are, are lined up. Like every Everything that our theory of change says is required in order to bring about change in a profound and lasting way, all of that is now on the table. And I think when that change didn't happen, I think that that actually wrought a considerable trauma on the imagination of many of America's liberals. People obviously reacted to the Obama moment in different ways for a lot of younger people, a lot of people in our generation. The response was to go to the left. For certain others, it was to adopt this very kind of Panglossian view of politics where Obama still remained the ideal, but then if the ideal couldn't realize that beautiful dream, then nobody could. So we all have to uh, kind of reckon with the fact that politics are fundamentally slimy. Anyway, that's some very long-winded table setting, which, by the way, I think is necessary because there's not a lot going on in this movie. Yeah, is that the whole episode, by the way? I mean, I guess we have a plot synopsis left, but that's about it. <laughs> well, I do think there's not a lot to this movie, despite the fact that it is, you know, yeah, a working piece of machinery and, you know, reasonably entertaining for what it is. Man, I wish I was on an airplane when this movie was on because I would have had a really pleasant flight from, I don't know, New York to L.A. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, are the only two cities that the people who made this movie have ever been to. <laughs> but I mean, it is interesting having seen so many of these bland political movies. I do feel like we're scholars now of this genre of sort of, you know, not very interesting, aggressively middle-brow sort of political drama. And I think the trajectory you mapped out is actually a very interesting one. From the we're too divided films to the, you know, politics is a messy game, folks, films of the 2010s, which is very much what this film is. Oh, and God, when I was giving that inventory of Lincoln and Zero Dark Thirty, etc., how could I not have mentioned House of Cards, which is actually the Obama era political, liberal audiovisual document and, and the exemplar of this tendency? Have you ever seen House of Cards? Well, no, but I've seen that Kevin Spacey Christmas video that he dropped. <laughs> So I think I kind of get the gist of it. <laughs> you know, the British House of Cards that it's sort of very loosely adapted from is actually very, very good and pretty directly about Thatcherism. It's a sort of, you know, Shakespearean tragedy, if you want, that's about the lack of a moral core in Thatcherism, but very entertaining and well acted. And then, yeah, I don't know, the American version of it is kind of like reasonably entertaining, not very smart drama for like one season and then just uh, absolutely horrendous. But at no 
point is it even remotely plausible. I'm sure I've said this on mic before, but in order for that show to work, you have to believe that every single person in Washington, D.C., including the guy who has been elected president, is just like a total rube and an idiot and easily manipulated. And Kevin Spacey, the House Minority Whip, and Robin Wright, the director of a small D.C.-based nonprofit, are the only ones with the Machiavellian killer instincts needed to take power. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the Ides of March, okay? It's interesting that was about Margaret Thatcher, because this is about another political figure <laughs> named William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, no, the, the politician at the center of this film is the governor of Pennsylvania, Mike Morris, played by George Clooney. He is in the waning days of the Democratic primary, running against a right-wing Democratic senator from Arkansas. His campaign manager, Paul Zara, is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he's a wizened, cynical veteran of the campaign trail, a real uh, Democrat Karl Rove. And the junior campaign manager is Ryan Gosling as Stephen Myers, an idealist, somebody who is part of this campaign because he truly believes in the politics that Mike Morris preaches. Early in the film, he has a hush-hush meeting with Tom Duffy, played by Paul Giamatti, the manager of the opponent's campaign, trying to lure him over. But he doesn't take that job because that Arkansas senator is just a step too far to the right. He's on this campaign because he truly believes in politics. Well, also importantly, the thing that is supposedly emblematic of this Arkansas senator, who I think his name is Pullman, uh, his fundamental corruption is the fact that there is another senator played by Jeffrey Right, who both the campaigns, you know, need if he throws his delegates in behind one of them and, you know, makes an endorsement, the primary is basically over. And it turns out that this senator from Arkansas, Pullman, has actually offered Jeffrey Wright secretary of state in his administration in exchange for an endorsement. So this for Ryan Gosling, the young idealist, is a, is a bridge too far. Now, I want to pause on the George Clooney character, the Pennsylvania governor, who's sort of like Jed Bartlett meets Bullworth. <laughs> I love all of his campaign speeches because, I mean, they seem to just be like, these are the things that George Clooney himself yells at the TV. I enjoy George Clooney in this movie. You know, he's George Clooney for a reason. He's very charismatic. But I mean, just the smuggest, most Democrat politician you've ever seen. Like, he's giving these speeches where it's just like, there's no kind of like campaign message. It's just like, oh, yeah. And another thing, uh, oil should be outlawed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, part of his stump speech is that he wants to ban non-electric cars upon taking office. Ten years after the day he takes office, there will be no non-electric cars manufactured, which is an, an incredible promise to make. I mean, they said Bernie was a pie-in-the-sky yeah. idealist. Also, it's very funny that that's he's supposed to be the governor of Pennsylvania, and that's his pitch. <laughs> I can't see myself or anyone, certainly not a government, telling a woman what she should do with her body. So you would appoint a judge? I would consider it arrogant to judge anyone until I've walked in their shoes. But you're against the death penalty? Mm -hmm. Because of what it says about us as a society. Suppose, Governor, it was your wife. And she was murdered. What would I do? It gets more complicated when it's personal. Sure. Well, if I could get to him, uh, I would find a way to kill him. So you, you, Governor, would impose a death penalty? No, I would commit a crime for which I would happily go to jail. Then why not let society do that? Because society has to be better than the individual. If I were to do that, I would be wrong. What about guns? Time for a commercial. <laughs> this is public television. <laughs> we don't have any commercials. 
So, uh, yeah, very, very much enjoyed that. And he's always like pulling the Jed Bartlett move of like having these uh, rhetorical debates with some poor audience member who says, um, Governor, why do you think gays should be allowed to marry, et cetera, et cetera. I like that he's against war, but he's against war because war concerns oil and he's against that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> and I love uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's description of his pedigree. This is in the midst of Hoffman's character pitching him as like a candidate the Republicans will never be able to beat. Okay, this is his pedigree. Okay, he was decorated by Bush Sr. for the first Gulf War. He protested the second. He left his state with a balanced budget. So, wow. Is this is this Mr. John Kerry that we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny that it's 2011 and this is like still the like idealized Democratic candidate. He's pro-electric car. He was for the first Gulf War. He thought the second one went too far. And folks, he's fiscally responsible. <laughs> <laughs> So in addition to the Jeffrey Wright character, there's also the question mark of the open primaries. Ohio is an open primary state and the Republicans, you know, Hannity, Limbaugh, they've been doing a get out the vote campaign to get anybody, independents and especially Republicans, to vote for the Arkansas senator. Which which is interesting, by the way. It's an interesting detail because, you know, first of all, this is a very implausible scheme. I'm unaware of this ever being done on, you know, a sufficient scale. The suggestion that like Hannity or somebody would say, oh, well, just in case a Democrat gets the presidency, be sure to get out there and vote for the most conservative Democrat in no, the primary. I, I, I don't think that's not how I read it. I could be wrong. But I thought that the point was they're all voting for the Arkansas senator because he's the more progressive one, which means he'll be easier to beat. That was my reading of it. Oh, wait a minute. I, I thought I thought they were okay i thought it was the opposite well we looked it up and i think you were actually right the point is that hannity and the fox news crowd are trying to get primary voters to make sure that the more conservative democrat wins which i gotta say is even more improbable than what i thought was going on in this scene i think to hannity they're all basically socialists right yeah i don't know it really does not make a lot of sense in fact the only people i've ever heard talk about that kind of thing are like liberals joining the gop so they can vote for liz fucking cheney or something so yeah giamatti and gosling have this meeting gosling says no but he spills the beans about the endorsement from the Jeffrey Wright character to his immediate superior, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman is angry that Gosling has gone to meet with the rival campaign manager. Meanwhile, Gosling has been having a fling with Molly, an intern on the campaign, played by Evan Rachel Wood. Twists and complications hit the movie during its second act. And uh, everyone, if you want, <laughs> if, if you want to see the movie, now would be entering spoiler territory. Gosling learns that the Evan Rachel Wood character is in fact pregnant with the child of George Clooney. That's right. She's pregnant with the child of the squeaky clean progressive governor that they're both fighting for. You brought up Bill Clinton before. And I mean, I was very surprised by this because, you know, I thought based on the sort of boilerplate about this movie where it's like, oh, it's the education of a young idealist. I thought it was going to turn out that George Clooney's character is like skeezy politically, but it turns out he's skeezy personally in a way that's very much like something you would see. And, you know, it reminds me that it 
reminds me of that film Primary Colors, where John Travolta plays like a thinly veiled uh, Bill Clinton. Well, there's a quote towards the end of the movie where the Ryan Gosling character says to George Clooney, if you want to be president, you can start a war, you can lie, you can cheat, you can bankrupt the country, but you can't fuck the interns. They'll get you for that. And that's kind of the Clooney perspective on the Clinton affair. Like, though the Clooney character is maybe personally skeezy, I think that monologue that Gosling gives towards the end makes the suggestion that, well, like, it doesn't really morally disqualify him, you know? Much as it wouldn't for Bill Clinton. Although Gosling's character, Stephen Myers, is intensely bothered by this. I mean, I guess he's also mad because, you know, he likes Molly. Anyway, he gets some petty cash from the campaign together. She asks him for money to help get an abortion, which she can't ask her father for because her family's Catholic. Her father, by the way, is also chair of the DNC. Earlier in the film, we've been introduced to a character named Ida, who is a reporter for the New York Times. Played by Marissa Tomei, and she's a real yellow journalist, if you ask me. Always hanging outside bars, trying to get the scoop trying to ruin the careers of young, idealistic campaign staffers. That's right. So she tells Myers that she's got a source and she's going to report that, uh, you know, I had this meeting with Paul Giamatti, the uh, manager from the other campaign, and she's going to publish it unless he gives her the details about Morris, uh, George Clooney's campaign, their attempts to get Jeffrey Wright's endorsement. And I want to interject here to say that the conceit of this film is that Ryan Gosling is this idealist who receives an education. But I'm not really sure it works when you step back and think about it, because his character is supposed to be, you know, one of the brightest political minds in the country, one of the best minds in political communications. He's clearly been around the block. He's working for this sitting governor, you know, as the kind of second in command of this campaign. And yet the things that he is like educated about, you know, the rough and tumble world of politics that he has to learn about is like, don't think that a reporter from The New York Times is your friend that you can (laughs) confide in. It's like he didn't know that already. Already. And that politicians have affairs. That's another another. Yeah, shocker. right. Don't go to meet with the rival campaign manager and then not tell your boss. Like, these are the things that he has to learn. He's upset to learn that uh, politicians offer things in exchange for endorsements. By the way, what did you think of that scene when he's meeting the Paul Giamatti character? Giamatti is telling him about the campaign strategy. Like, look, we got an open primary. We got Republicans and independents coming to vote for our guy. Come over to our side. We're we're going to win. We're taking this to D.C. And Gosling says, what, what, what you you have? You'll take votes from Republicans. And <laughs> Giamatti basically says, listen, I've sat idly by while generations of Democrats have they've, they've bit the dust uh, because they wouldn't get down in the mud. And, you know, it's it's funny. There was that really viral tweet that went around after the 2016 election. I can't remember who did it. I'm sure you've seen it where where they said that the Democratic establishment are going to look hard and inward at this and are going to conclude we need to become more racist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out Randy for that. Randy, right. And, you know, if we're talking about what this movie says about not just George Clooney, but the Hollywood liberal imagination, that's their conception of what it means to get down and dirty. It's not necessarily, Luke, your conception of what it means to... (laughs) 
you know, depart from gentlemanly politics. You know, it's so uninteresting, this way of thinking about political corruption. And it's also so out of touch, considering this film was made in 2011, because, you know, as liberals are so fond of saying, oh, Barack Obama didn't ever have, you know, he had one scandal in, in office and it was that tan suit, you know, that fucking tan suit. They love bringing that up. Um, what about the drone strikes? Oh, that's not what I was going to say. I've told you, I've told you my thoughts on that annual Twitter cycle. Absolutely hate it. I hate everything about it. No, no. What I was going to say was when liberals say Obama didn't have any scandals, what they mean is he didn't have anything like Bill Clinton had. There's nothing you can find on Obama, as far as I know, that is anything like an iota of Trump family corruption or sleaziness or whatever. But it's like, but I mean, okay, it's like Obama took a record amount of Wall Street cash in 2008, then did, you know, the most light touch financial reform, basically governed as a small C conservative. And then as soon as he left office, just cashed in to say nothing of what the rest of his administration did, you know, all very similar, you know, Robert Gibbs going to work for McDonald's and, you know, lobbying against the minimum wage. Uh, Eric Holder, probably the best example, a guy who had a background defending white collar clients, went to work in the Obama administration to be the country's top lawmaker, not only did not get tough on banks and white collar fraud, but actually institutionalized extrajudicial settlements so that they would never be prosecuted, institutionalized the principle of too big to jail. So when HSBC was found to literally be laundering money to drug cartels, all they had to do was pay a fine because they're too big to jail. After that was done, Holder went back to work at the same firm that he'd left to work in the administration and like a double agent coming in from the cold, returned to representing as clients many of the same companies that he had refrained from prosecuting despite their larcenous behavior while he was attorney general. Now, that all sounds pretty corrupt to me, but instead it's 2011 and you're getting a movie like this from the mind of George Clooney where the corruption is like, oh, uh, the politician had an affair or he was like going to offer a sitting U.S. senator a position in his cabinet in exchange for an endorsement. And it's like, I'm sorry, that ain't it, (laughs) you know? So what happens next, Will? Well, Marissa Tomei, as the New York Times journalist, has the scoop that Gosling met with Giamatti. How did this leak? Giamatti swears that he didn't leak it. Gosling told only one other person, his immediate superior, the campaign manager, Philip Seymour Hoffman. When he confronts him, Hoffman says that yes, he did leak it, to give him a pretense to fire him. There's only one currency that matters in politics, and it's loyalty. Nice bit of uh, hammy mega acting from Philip Seymour Hoffman in that scene. You know, we, yeah. we love to see it. Don't you love to see just a just a good actor going for it? <laughs> of course, it then turns out, you know, Myers gets fired, obviously, by Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Then he obviously goes to uh, where he thinks he's going to still have a job, goes to Paul Giamatti and says, OK, I'm with you. I got some I'll give you everything on Morris So give you a strategy. Uh, and I got something big, which obviously is the fact that he's had this affair. And Giamatti says, kid. In politics, there are kings and there are pawns. And at the end of the day, a pawn gets knocked over by a king. Yeah, so of course, Giamatti has rather sleazily invited Gosling's character to the meeting just so that Philip Seymour Hoffman will find out about it and he will get fired because he knows Philip Seymour Hoffman values loyalty. And then, folks, you got to be five moves ahead on the chessboard that we call politics. (laughs) 
so I did laugh out loud during this scene. Uh, there's a bunch of scenes like this in the movie where, you know, it's, it's always two characters, usually one of them being Ryan Gosling, you know, confronting one another. And there's such kind of intense gravity to the scenes. And the actors are honestly like too powerful for the for what is frankly pretty like lightweight material that they're being given here. So when Gosling is confronting Paul Giamatti and he's like, are you saying one day I'll be jaded and cynical? And then Giamatti interjects, just like me and I laughed out loud at that because you know it was a wonderfully delivered line Giamatti you know obviously amazing and a nice little bit of foreshadowing to what we know will happen by the end of the movie we know that (laughs) yes he's going to predict accurately Gosling too will become jaded and cynical this is a movie that tells you what it's going to do and then it doesn't (laughs) but I will say you know that scene we're talking about like uh, I don't know maybe Clerks 3 is still just ringing in my head too much but goddamn, just the way that Clooney shoots two people talking worlds ahead worlds ahead from what we saw in that last movie yeah visually very lush compared to clerks three despite being in many ways just a paint by the numbers hollywood studio film but yeah real bomb for the eyes after sitting through clerks three but folks there are still more shocks to be had gosling goes <laughs> to the last place that he thinks he'll still be wanted which is Evan Rachel Wood's hotel room. But it turns out she has overdosed, an apparent suicide that will be covered up as an accidental overdose. The George Clooney campaign holds a press conference after her passing. They all attend the funeral, where her father, the chair of the DNC, gives a teary eulogy. Uh, By the way, fathers are not allowed to give eulogies at Catholic funerals. I just want to say, George Clooney doesn't know a goddamn thing about a Catholic funeral. He should have consulted me. I know all about Catholic funerals. (laughs) But here, Gosling sees an opening. From the scene of the suicide, he takes Evan Rachel Wood's phone, where, of course, the last number called was the governor. During the press conference, he calls George Clooney on her phone. George Clooney realizes that Gosling means business. They meet deep throat style in a shadowy room. This is another one of those scenes where I just felt like Gosling. I was was laughing. This is movie magic here. I wasn't supposed to be laughing during the scene because no, like Gosling and Clooney are given it like 110% during the scene and they are just actually too powerful. Like the streams are getting crossed. (laughs) Like nothing in this lightweight fair justifies like the gravitas that they both bring to this scene and so i found it just like an accidentally like hilarious scene to watch because they're just like shaking each other down and the ambiance is so dark there's this really like bleak score and uh yeah the film stakes don't justify it at all yeah it is funny that the stakes are like oh some other democrat will win the democratic primary yeah, the stakes I mean... are someone else is gonna win or ryan gosling is gonna blackmail this pennsylvania governor into doing what his opponent would otherwise do anyway and offer Jeffrey Wright Secretary of State in exchange for his endorsement. All of it is just so that, you know, Ryan Gosling can, like, get a promotion. Yeah, God forbid that the junior campaign staffer might have to get a career as a consultant. Yeah, right. Like, that's what's going to happen if he doesn't do this. That's where (laughs) Philip Seymour Hoffman goes. He goes over to K Street for a million a year. That's the salary that he quotes. Sounds awful. (laughs) And instead, he's able to, you know, stay in politics, which is what he loves. But now he's like convinced George Clooney to, uh, you know, seek Jeffrey Wright's endorsement and get this, you know, shitty conservative Democrat to be his, you know, future secretary of state. 
Which, by the way, if you really believe politics is, you know, a messy and dirty business, there'd be absolutely nothing stopping George Clooney's character once he wins the Democratic nomination. Just go to Jeffrey Wright and say, uh, nope, sorry, you can't be Secretary of State. What the fuck are you going to do about it? I just got elected president. And then he gets to be Secretary of Agriculture or something. Yeah, just ask uh, Mayor Pete, for instance. <laughs> what do you think you have, Stephen? Troubled young girl tells you a story. A troubled young pregnant girl. Is that what she told you? Who needed cash for an abortion. What'd you do? You give her money? Maybe she just needed cash and you were the perfect guy to hit up. Is that your best play? You need a job that bad, Stephen. You come in here with your dick in your hand. You got nothing. Then how did I get in here? So yeah, Gosling and Clooney meet mano a mano. Clooney says, <laughs> what do you have on me? And Gosling makes the assertion that he has her suicide note that names him, that mentions the abortion. Clooney says, there is no suicide note. Gosling says, do you want to take that chance? The choice is yours. My terms are, you fire Philip Seymour Hoffman and you give me his job. And in exchange, I give you Jeffrey Wright's delegates. And that's exactly what George Clooney does. Because George Clooney, his character wisely realizes doesn't really matter if it's Gosling or Hoffman at the end of the day. That's right. And the last thing we see is Ryan Gosling as Myers uh, going into a studio. A changed man, yeah. worth noting. No, no longer a smile on his face. He's become the Ryan Gosling of Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> That's right. Just this withered, you know, war-weary look on his face. Uh, as he's going to sit down before the interview, the New York Times reporter comes up to him, and he's smart enough to be entirely poker-faced. He's realized that, uh, yeah, maybe as a senior campaign operative on a presidential campaign, I should not just be gabbing with a fucking campaign reporter at the New York Times. But I ask you, Luke, what profit it a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul that that's what i ask you <laughs> so he's sitting down for the interview and i think we hear off camera the voice of john king yeah by the way this is one of those movies there's lots of oh full of cameos love charlie it. rose fucking chris matthews hardball rachel maddow and then yeah the voice of john king but gosling is sitting down for an interview and he's asked by john king you know, wow, this is a, a shocking turn of events, this endorsement, which practically ends the Democratic primaries. What can you tell us about how this came about? And Ryan Gosling sits there stone-faced, and it fades to black, and it says, directed by George Clooney, my favorite sentence in the English language. Well, there you have it, folks. Very entertaining movie. <laughs> Full of good performances. Uh, not a lot to say. I, I have to say, I'm worried that people will take this as a recommendation. I, when Will or I says that a movie like this is entertaining, you have to remember what the... You We're know, grading on the Michael and Us curve, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this movie was a lot more entertaining than a lot of the shit we've watched. But like... Don't go out and watch this movie thinking that it's going to be brilliant or whatever. There are better movies with, you know, Evan Rachel Wood or Ryan Gosling or George Clooney in them or Giamatti or Philip Seymour Hoffman. Better movies than this. But I will say I've had more fun talking about it than I expected. I will just say one more thing that's a little more personal uh, watching this movie. And considering that it's from 2011, I do have to say if I had seen this movie in 2011, I think I really would have enjoyed it. I used to be just like an all around politics guy. 2011 definitely, you know, regarded myself as someone on the left, you know, self-identified as a socialist, all that stuff. I loved just pure politics shit. It's one of the reasons why I enjoyed The West Wing so much, because you get to hang out with political staffers and you get to see them having, you know, uh, Swifty and banter about uh, recess appointments or whatever else. 
filibustering, all that kind of stuff. And I really think that if you're the kind of person who enjoys that sort of thing, then a movie like this is for you. And it is better acted and, you know, better executed than plenty of movies like this. But watching it today, all I can think is how boring my younger self was in finding stuff like this interesting. If you have, as I did when I was kind of in my first few years of university, you know, yeah, maybe a sort of a foot in the organized left, but a foot in kind of the political mainstream as well. The horizons that are available to you, even in terms of the fiction, like the fantasy political fiction you consume, are so limited Like politics in these movies is something that happens in kind of like proverbial smoke filled rooms. You have to find political operatives who by and large are, you know, often not very interesting people, or at least, you know, the trade that they're involved in is not very interesting most of the time. You have to find all of that inherently exciting. And now that I'm many years out of that particular phase of myself, I'm just astonished there are people, you know, my age or older, you know, that have like Pod Save America politics. You know, I watched uh, I watched some Pod Save America clips a few weeks ago when I was writing an article. And then so, you know, the algorithm is just like now all these Pod Save America clips. And it's all stuff <laughs> that's like, you know, Jen Psaki reacts to latest Trump indictment. And then just one of the Pod Save guys uh, next to Jen Psaki. And like that would be like amazing, like incendiary content in the world that I used to at least partly have my foot in. And a movie like this would have been a really like deep movie that I really would have enjoyed. The other thing about this kind of movie, which I think is really important and is very important to things like The West Wing as well, is that its horizons are so limited to whether the people involved, be they operatives or politicians, are good people. It's so invested in that because it sort of takes for granted that you, the viewer, like you're already you're invested in all of these institutions. And yeah, we all basically agree these institutions are good and they basically function harmoniously and properly and there's nothing really wrong with them. And so what matters is the people who staff them are good people. And again, you know, that's that's boring. It might lend itself occasionally to good drama, but it's by and large pretty boring. But more importantly, like I was saying before, it means you're going to be completely blinkered about so much actual political corruption and how it happens. And the fact that, you know, as the Obama administration, you know, Alumni Association shows us all too well. It is perfectly possible to be like an upright liberal operative who makes the leap from your, you know, Princeton poli sci program or whatever to the Obama campaign, goes into politics for kind of idealistic reasons, and then serves as part of this vast machinery that oversees the liquidation of the homeowning middle class, the total retreat from uh, any kind of ambitious legislative agenda, and is perfectly content to oversee the same war machine and just do so a little more politely. And then when it's all done, you know, have Donald Trump be elected and just ride off into the sunset to various sinecures throughout corporate America. You can do all of that and not break the law or even be individually corrupt as a person. And instead of meditations on any of that, I feel like what the Obama era gave us, or at least, you know, what what Hollywood gave us throughout the Obama era is movies like this that ask, can idealism really survive the rough and tumble world of politics? I'm 